Chapter 9. The Spur. I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. John 9, 4, King James Version. If this ninth chapter of John is intended to be a continuation of the history contained in the eighth, as we think it is, then it brings to our attention a very extraordinary fact. We observe in the eighth chapter that our Lord was about to be stoned by the Jews. Then he withdrew himself from the circle of his infuriated foes and passed through the crowd, not in a hurried manner, but in a calm and dignified way. He was not at all disconcerted, but wholly self-possessed. His disciples, who had seen his danger, gathered around him, while he quietly retreated. The group went their way with firm footsteps until they reached the outside of the temple. At the gate there sat a man well known to have been blind from his birth. Our Saviour was so little affected by the danger which had threatened him that he paused and fixed his eye upon the poor beggar, attentively surveying him. He continued in his forward progress and worked the miracle of this man's healing. If it's true that the two chapters make up only one narrative, and I think it is, though we are not absolutely sure, then we have before us a most memorable instance of the marvelous calmness of our Saviour in the face of danger. When the Jews took up stones to stone him, he did not needlessly expose his life, but after he had withdrawn a very little distance from the immediate danger, he was stopped by the sight of human misery, and maintained a calm head to perform a deed of mercy. Oh, the divine majesty of benevolence! How brave it makes a man! It leads him to forget himself, despise danger, and become so calm that he can coolly perform the work which is given to him to do. I see our Saviour as being considerate of others, and unmindful of himself. There is a lesson here for us, not only for us to imitate, but also to bring us comfort. If he, while flying from his enemies, still stopped to bless the blind, how much more will he bless us who seek his face, now that he is exalted on high, and clothed with divine power and glory at the right hand of the Father? There is nothing to hurry him now. He is exposed to no danger now. Send up your prayer, breathe out your desires, and he will reply, According to your faith, be it unto you. Matthew 9, 29. As we read about this cure of the blind man, we are struck again with the difference between the disciples and the Master. The disciples looked at this man, blind from birth, as a great mystery, a strange phenomenon, and they began, like philosophers, to suggest theories as to how it was consistent with divine justice that a man could be born blind. They saw that there must be a connection between sin and suffering, but they couldn't trace the connection in this instance. So they were all speculating on the wonderful problem in front of them, which they didn't know how to solve. This reminds us of theories on another difficulty which never has been explained yet the origin of evil. They wanted to sail on the boundless deep and were impatient for their master to pilot them, but he had other and better work to do. Our Lord gave them an answer, but it was a short and curt one. He wasn't looking at the blind man from their point of view. He wasn't considering how the man came to be blind, but how his eyes could be opened. He considered less the various metaphysical and moral difficulties which might arise out of the case, 
and considered more what would be the best method to remove from the man his suffering and deliver him from his piteous plight. A lesson to us that instead of inquiring how sin came into the world, we should ask how we can get it out of the world. Instead of worrying our minds about how this set of circumstances is consistent with justice and how the event can work together with kindness, we should see how both can be turned into something useful to God. The judge of all the earth can take care of himself. He doesn't experience any difficulties for which he needs any of our advice. Only presumptuous unbelief ever dares to suppose the Lord to be perplexed. It will be much better for us to do the work of Him that sent us than to be judging divine circumstances or our fellow men. It is not ours to speculate, but to perform acts of mercy and love according to the intent of the gospel. So let us be less inquisitive and more practical, less for cracking doctrinal nuts and more for bringing forth the bread of life to the starving multitudes. Once again, our Lord tells us the right way of looking at sorrow and at sin. It was a dreadful thing to see a man shut out from the light of the sun from his very birth, but our Saviour took a very encouraging view of it. His view was not in despair and contained nothing that could suggest complaining. It was the most encouraging and stimulating. He explained the man's blindness in this way, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. The man's calamity was God's opportunity. His distress was an occasion for displaying divine goodness, wisdom, and power. I see sin everywhere, in myself, in others, in this great city, in the nations of the earth, and very obvious sin and suffering in war. But what should I say about it? Should I sit down and wring my hands in utter despair? If so, I would be incapable of service. No, if I am going to do good as Jesus did, I must take His brave and hopeful view of things. In this way I will keep my heart whole and be prepared to work. The Master's view of it is that all the distress in the world provides, through the infinite kindness of God, a platform for the display of divine love. I remember in the life of Dr. Lyman Beecher he tells of a young convert who, after finding peace with God, was heard by him to say, I rejoice that I was a lost sinner. You might think it's a strange thing to be glad about, because of all things it is most to be mourned. But here was her reason because God's infinite grace and mercy and wisdom and all His attributes are glorified in me as they never could have been had I not been a sinner and had I not been lost. Isn't that the best light in which to see the saddest things? Sin, somehow or other, desperate evil as it is, will be overruled to display God's goodness. Just as the goldsmith sets a foil around a sparkling diamond, the Lord has allowed moral and physical evil to come into this world to cause His infinite wisdom, grace, power, and all His other attributes to be seen better by the whole intelligent universe. Let's look at it in this light, and the next time we see suffering, we will say, Here's our opportunity to show what the love of God can do for these sufferers. The next time we witness abounding sin, let us say, Here is an opportunity for a great achievement of mercy.
I suppose great engineers have been very glad for Niagara that they might span it, very glad for the Montsinus that they might bore it, very glad for the Suez Isthmus that they might cut a canal through it, glad that there were difficulties, that there might be room for engineering skill. Were there no sin, there would have been no Saviour. If no death, no resurrection. If no fall, no new covenant. If no rebellious race, no incarnation. No Calvary, no ascension, no second advent. That is a fantastic way of looking at evil and marvelously stimulating. Though we don't know, and perhaps will never know, the deepest reason why an infinitely gracious God permitted sin and suffering to enter the universe, yet we can at least encourage this practical thought. God will be glorified in the overcoming of evil and its consequences. Therefore, let us gird up our loins in God's name for our part of the conflict. The Master Worker The text is a portrait of the great master worker. Let's hear it again. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. First, this master worker takes his own share in the work. He says, I must work. I, Jesus, the Son of Man, for two or three years working here on earth in public ministry, I, I must work. There is a sense in which all gospel work is Christ's. As the atoning sacrifice, he treads the winepress alone. As the great head of the church, all that is done is to be credited to him. But in the sense in which he used these words, speaking of his human nature, speaking of himself as tabernacling among the sons of men, there was a portion of the work of relieving this world's woe and scattering gospel truth among men that he must do and nobody else could do. I must work, preach, pray, and heal, even I, the Christ of God. In salvation, Jesus stands alone. In life-giving, he has no human co-worker. But in light-giving, which he refers to in the fifth verse, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, John 9, 5, he has many companions. All his saints are the light of the world even as Jesus Christ while in the world was the world's light. He cured some who could not be cured by Peter or James or John. Some had the good news brought to them who could not receive it from any lip but his own. Our Lord, when he became the servant of servants, took his share in the common labors of the elect brotherhood. How this should encourage us! It is sufficient for the general to stand in the place of observation and direct the battle. We don't usually expect that the commander will take a personal share in the work of the conflict. But with Jesus, this is not so. He fought in the ranks as a common soldier. As God-man and mediator, he rules and governs all the distribution of grace. Yet, as partaker of our flesh and blood, he once bore the burden and heat of the day. As the great architect and master builder, he supervises all. Yet, there is a portion of his spiritual temple which he humbled himself to build with his own hands. Jesus Christ has seen actual service, and actually resisted to the point of blood in the midst of the dust and turmoil of strife. It is said that this same aspect made Alexander's soldiers brave, because if they were worn out by long marches 
Alexander did not ride, but marched side by side with them. If a river had to be crossed in the heat of opposition, in the midst of all the risk was Alexander himself. Let this be our encouragement. Jesus Christ has taken a personal share in the evangelism of the world. He has not only taken his own part as head, prophet, high priest, and apostle, in which he stands alone, but he has also taken his part among the common builders in the erection of the new Jerusalem. Next, our Lord placed great emphasis upon the gracious work which was laid upon him. I must work the work of him that sent me. Whatever else is not done, I must do that. As his servant, I must faithfully do the work allotted to me by God. Those against me may be close at my heels, their stones may be ready to fall upon me, but I must fulfill my life work. I must open blind eyes and spread the light around me. I can forget to eat bread, I can forget to find shelter for myself from the dew that falls so heavily at night, but this work I must do. Beyond all things, the Redeemer felt a force upon him to do his Father's will. Scripture Knew ye not? that it behooves me to be about my father's business? Luke 2.49. For the zeal of thy house has consumed me. Psalm 69.9. Everything in the Saviour's life yielded to his master passion. There were some works our Saviour would not do. When someone asked him to speak to his brother to divide their inheritance, though that might have been a useful thing, Christ did not feel a call to it. Scripture and he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Luke twelve fourteen. But when it came to the work of giving light, that he must do. It was the specialty of his life, and to this he bent all his strength. He was like an arrow shot from a bow, not speeding toward two targets, but with undivided force hurrying towards one single end. The unity of his purpose was never for a moment broken. No second object ever eclipsed the first. Certain works of grace, works of benevolence, works of light giving, works of healing, works of saving, these he must do. He must do them. He must perform his own part of them. He rightly describes this work as the works of him that sent me. Note that. If ever there lived a man who might have taken a part of the honor of the work for himself, it was the Lord Jesus. Yet over and over again he says, The Father that dwells in me, he does the works. John 14.10 As man, he is particularly careful to set us the example of acknowledging constantly that if any work is done by us, it is the work of God through us. So, though he says, I must work, notice the next words, the works of him that sent me. They are still my Father's works when most think they are mine. Though I must work them, they will still be credited to Him, and He shall gain honor from them. If I don't say much about this in respect to Christ, it is because it seems so much easier to apply this to us than to Him. And if so easily applied, let it be humbly and practically remembered by us today. If you win a soul by your work, it is God's work. If you instruct the ignorant, you do it, but it is God that does it through you, if it's rightly done. Learn to acknowledge the hand of God, and yet don't pull back your own. Learn to put your hand out, 
and yet feel that it is powerless unless God extends His own. Combine in your thoughts the need of the all-working God and the duty of your own exertion. Don't make the work of God an excuse for your idleness, and don't let your earnest activity ever tempt you to forget that the power belongs to Him. The Savior is a model to us in putting this in just the right form. It is God's work to open the blind eye. If the eye has been sealed in darkness from birth, no man can open it. God must do it, but the clay and spittle must still be used, and Siloam's pool must be made use of, or the light will never enter the sightless eye. So, in grace, it is God's work to illuminate the understanding by His Spirit. It is His work to move the affections, His work to influence the will, His work to convert the entire nature, His work to sanctify, and His work to save. Yet you, believer, are to work this miracle. The truth you spread will illuminate the intellect. The arguments you use will influence the affections. The reasons you give will move the will, and the precious gospel you teach will purify the heart. But it is God who does it, God dwelling in the gospel. Only as you see and understand these two truths will you work correctly. I must work personally, and this holy work must be my special business, but I must do it in a right spirit, humbly feeling all the while that it is God's work in and through me. Our Lord, in this portrait of Himself as the master worker, is clearly seen as owning His true position. He says, I must work the works of Him that sent me. He had not come from the Father on His own account. He was not here as a principal, but as a subordinate, as an ambassador sent by His King. His own witness was, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who has sent me. John 5.30 He often reminded his hearers, in his preaching, that he was speaking in his Father's name, and not in his own name. For instance, when he said, The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. John 14.10 He took upon himself the form of a servant. God gave him a mission and gave him the grace to carry out that mission, and he was not ashamed to tell others about his submission to the Father. In his divine nature, he was God over all, blessed forever, whose praises ten thousand harpers are overjoyed to sound upon that glassy sea. Yet, as the mediator, he lowered himself to be sent, a commissioned agent from God, a servant to do Jehovah's bidding. Because he was such, it was proper for him as a servant to be faithful to him that sent him. Jesus felt this as a part of the divine obligation, which impelled him to say, I must work, I am a sent man, and I have to give an account to him that sent me. Brothers and sisters, I wish we all felt this, because just as the Father sent Christ, in the same way Christ sent us, and we are acting under divine authority as divine representatives. We must, in joy, be faithful to the communion with which God has honored us by trusting us with the responsibility of the gospel of Christ. No man shall serve God correctly if he thinks he stands on an independent footing. It is recognizing your true position 
that will help to drive you onward in incessant diligence in the cause of your God. Dwelling very briefly on each of these points, I must remind you that our Lord did not regard Himself merely as an official, but He threw hearty enthusiasm into the work He undertook. I see unyielding zeal glowing like a subdued flame in the very center of the live coal of the text. I must work the works of Him that sent me. Not I will, I intend, or I ought, but I must. Even though He was sent, the commission was so compatible to His nature that He worked with all the enthusiasm of a volunteer. He was commissioned, but His own will propelled Him forward, not out of obligation, but willingly the Lord Jesus became a Savior. He couldn't help it. It was within His very nature that He must be doing good. Was He not God? And isn't God the fountain of kindness? Doesn't deity perpetually, like the sun, send forth beams to gladden His creatures? Jesus Christ, the God incarnate, by irresistible instinct, must be found doing good. Besides, He was so tender and so compassionate that He had to bless those in sorrow. He felt for that blind man. The blind man grieved in his darkness, but not more than the Saviour grieved for the poor sufferer's sake. The eyes which Christ fixed on that man were eyes brimming with tears of pity. He felt the miseries of humanity. He was not stone-hearted, but tender and full of compassion towards all the suffering sons of men. So our Saviour was self-impelled to His labors of grace. His love forced Him. He must do the work that He was sent to do. It is a right thing when a man's business and inclinations run together. If you put your son as an apprentice in a trade which he doesn't like, he will never make much of it. But when his duty and his own desires run in the same channel, then he is likely to prosper. So Jesus was sent of God, but not as an unwilling ambassador. He came as cheerfully and joyously as if it was by his own voluntary wish. He cried in gracious enthusiasm, I must, I must. No man does a really good and great work until he feels he must. No man preaches well except he who must preach. The man sent of God must come under irresistible pressure, even like the apostle of old who said, For though I preach the gospel, I have no reason to glory, for it is an obligation laid upon me, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.16. Or he must be like the eloquent Eliphaz in the book of Job, who spoke first and only spoke at all because he felt like a vessel needing to vent. Our Saviour became so grand a worker because desire kindled, burned, and flamed within his soul until his nature was all aglow. He was like a volcano in full action, which must pour forth its fiery flood. But in his case the lava was not that which destroys, but that which blesses and makes rich. Another point regarding our Saviour as a worker is that he clearly saw that there was a fitting time to work, and that this time would have its end. In a certain sense, Christ always works. For Zion's sake he does not rest, and for Jerusalem's sake he does not remain silent in his intercessions before the eternal throne. But, my brethren, as a man, preaching, healing, and relieving the sick on earth, Jesus had his day, just like every other man, and that day ended at the set time. 
He referenced a common Eastern proverb which says that men can only work by day, and when the day is over, it is too late to work, and he meant that. He had an earthly lifetime in which to labor, and when that was over, he would no longer perform the kind of labor he was then doing. He called his lifetime a day in order to show us that he took seriously the shortness of it. We too often look at life as a matter of years, and we even think of the years as though they were very long, even though every year seems to spin around more quickly than the last. Men who are growing gray will tell you that life seems to pass by at a much faster rate than in their younger days. To a child, a year seems like a long time. To a grown man, even ten years is just a short space of time. To God, the Eternal, a thousand years are like a single day. Here our Lord sets us an example of estimating our time at a high rate, on account of how brief it is. The longest you have is a day. That day, how short! Young man, is it your morning? Are you just converted? Is the dew of repentance still trembling upon the green blade? Have you just seen the first radiance which streams from the eyelids of the morning? Have you heard the joyous singing of the birds? Up with you, man, and serve your God in love. Serve Him with all your heart. Or have you known your Lord so long that it is noon with you, and the burden and heat of the day are on you? Persevere, make good speed, because your sun will soon decline. And have you been a Christian long? Then the shadows lengthen, and your sun is almost down. Quick with you, man, use both hands, strain every nerve, and put every muscle to work. Do all, at all times and in all places, that your mind can think of, or your enthusiasm can suggest to you, because the night cometh when no man can work. I love to think of the Master with these furious Jews behind him, yet stopping because he must do the work of healing, because his day was still unended. He cannot die until his day is over. His time has not yet come, and if it were, he would close his life by doing one more act of mercy. So he stops to bless the wretched and then passes on his way. Be quick to do good at all times. Scripture Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.58 Knowing that the time is short, redeem the time, because the days are evil. Press much into little by continuous diligence. Glorify your God greatly while the short day of your life burns on, and may God accept you as He accepted His Son. Ourselves as Workers Under Him First, I will remind you that there rests on each of us a personal obligation, individual, distinct, personal obligation. I must work the works of Him that sent me. We are in danger nowadays of losing ourselves in societies and associations. We must labor to maintain the uniqueness of our dedication to Christ Jesus. History is rich with records of deeds of personal daring. We can't expect modern warfare to exhibit much of the same, because the fighting is done so much by masses and machinery. In the same way, I am afraid, our mode of doing Christian work is getting to be so mechanical, so much en masse, 
that there is barely room in ordinary cases for personal deeds of daring and individual acts of bravery. Yet the success of the church will lie in that very daring and bravery. It is in each man feeling that he has something to do for Christ, which an angel could not do for him, and that the strength of a church exists in that before God. He must believe that God has committed to him a certain work, which, if it is not done by him, will never be done. A certain number of souls will enter heaven through his influence, and they will never enter in any other way. God has given his Son power over all flesh to give eternal life, to as many as he has given him. We must believe that Christ has given us power over some part of the flesh, and by our instrumentality they will get eternal life, and by no other means. We have work to do, and we must do it. Brothers and sisters, our church will be grandly equipped for service when you all have this same outlook, when there is no throwing the work on the minister or on the more gifted brothers, or leaving it all to be done by distinguished sisters, but when each one feels, I have my work, and to my work I will bend my whole strength, to do it in my Master's name. Secondly, the personal obligation in the text compels us to do the same type of work as Christ did. I explained to you what it was. We are not called to save souls, for He alone is the Saviour, but we are called to enlighten the sons of men. That is to say, sin is not even known to be sin by many. Our teaching and example must make sin apparent to them. The way of salvation by the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ is quite unknown to a large part of mankind. It is our work to simply and incessantly be telling that soul-saving story. This work must be done, no matter what else we leave undone. Some men spend their time making money, and that is the main object of their lives. They would be just as usefully employed if they spent all their lives collecting pins or cherry stones. Whether a man lives to accumulate gold coins or brass nails, his life will be equally pointless and end in the same disappointment. Money-making or fame-making or power-getting are only pieces of play. They are sports and games for children. But the work of Him that sent us is a far nobler thing. It is permanent gain. If I gain a soul, it is lasting treasure. If I win the Lord's approval, I am forever richer. If I give a man one better thought of God, if I bring to a darkened soul the light from heaven, or lead one erring heart to peace, if one spirit quickly rushing downward to hell is by my means directed to a blissful heaven, then I have done some work worth doing. And such work, brethren, we must do, whatever else we leave undone. Let's make everything else in this world subservient to this which is our life work. We have our callings, we ought to have them, for if anyone desires not to work, neither should he eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Our earthly calling is not our life work. We have a high calling of God in Christ Jesus, and this must take priority. Poor or rich, healthy or sick, honored or disgraced, we must glorify God. This is necessity. All else may be. This must be. 
we resolve, sternly resolve, and desperately determine that we will not throw away our lives on playthings, but God's work must and will be done by us. Each man will do his own share, God helping him. May the ever-blessed Holy Spirit give us power and grace to turn our resolves into actions. Let us not forget the truth which I shared earlier, that it is God's work which we are called upon to do. Let us look at the text again. I must work the works of Him that sent me. I can discover no greater motivation in all the world than this, that the work I have to do is God's work. We have the example of Samson. The strength which existed in Samson was not his own, it was God's strength. Was that a reason for Samson to lie still and be idle? No, it was the very sound of a mighty trumpet which stirred the blood of the hero to fight for the people of God. If the strength of Samson was more than the force of sinew and muscle, force given to him by the Almighty One, then to the work with you, Samson, and smite the Philistines. Slay again thy thousands. Do you dare to sleep with God's Spirit upon you? Up, man! Feel free to sleep if you are just a common Israelite, but when God is in you and with you, how can you remain idle? No, use your strength and conquer the enemies. When Paul was in Corinth, God performed special miracles by his hands, so that even handkerchiefs which were taken from his body healed the sick. Was that a reason for Paul to withdraw himself to some quiet retreat and do nothing? To my mind, there appears to be no stronger argument for why Paul should go from house to house and lay his hands on all around and heal the sick. It's the same with you. You have the power to work miracles, my brother. The sharing of the gospel, accompanied by the Spirit of God, works moral and spiritual miracles. Since you can work these miracles, should you say, God will do his own work? No, man, but right and left, at all times and in all places, go and proclaim the soul-saving story, and God will prepare your way. God works by you, so you must work. A small vessel lying idle in dock without freight is useless to its owner. But a great ship with much horsepower cannot be allowed to remain unemployed. The greater the power at our command, the more urgently we are bound to use it. The indwelling power of God is extended to us in reply to faith and prayer, so shouldn't we work to obtain it? The fact that the church's work is God's work rather than hers is no reason for her to indulge in sloth. If she had only her own strength, it might not be such a crime for her to waste it but being surrounded with God's strength, she dares not loiter. God's message to her is, Awake, awake! Put on thy strength, O Zion! Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city! Isaiah 52, 1. God desires that this message be heard by every heart, so that all of us would arise, because God is in our midst. Next we see in the text our obligation resulting from our position. We are all sent, just like Jesus was, if we are believers in Christ. Let us feel the weight of our obligation pressing us into action. What would you think of an angel who was sent from the throne of God to bear a message and who lingered on the way or refused to go? It was midnight, and the message came to Gabriel and his fellow songsters, 
Go and sing o'er the plains of Bethlehem, where shepherds keep their flocks. Here is your sonnet. Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, good will towards men. Could you imagine if they didn't act, or if they wished to decline the task? It would be impossible with such music and with such a mission given from such a Lord. They sped joyously on their way. Your mission is not less honorable than that of the angels. You are sent to speak of good things which bring peace and good will to men and glory to God. Will you stand around and do nothing? Can you remain silent? No, as the Lord Jesus sends you, go forth. I pray that you go at once and proclaim the story of his love with joy. I could imagine an angel almost being tempted to linger, if sent to execute vengeance and to deluge fields with blood for the iniquity of nations. But I don't think he would even hesitate then, for these holy ones do the Lord's bidding without question. If the mission was of mercy, the loving spirit of an angel would leap for joy and be excited by the sweetness of the errand, as well as by the mission of his Lord. We too, if we are sent by God on a difficult mission, are bound to go. But if we are sent on so sweet a mission as proclaiming the gospel, how can we delay? To tell the poor criminal shut up in the dungeon of despair that there is liberty, to tell the condemned that there is pardon, to tell the dying that there is life in a look at the crucified one, do you find this hard? Do you call this toil? Shouldn't it be the sweetest aspect of your life that you have such blessed work as this to do? If tonight, when you are in your chamber alone, you suddenly see a vision of angels who speak to you in celestial voices and appoint you for holy service in the church, you would surely feel impressed by such a visit. But Jesus Christ Himself has come to you, has bought you with His blood, and has set you apart by His redemption. You have confessed His coming to you, because you have been baptized into His death and declared yourself to be His. Are you less impressed by Christ's coming than you would have been by an angel's visit? Awake, my brother, the hand of the crucified has touched you, and he has said, Go in your strength. The eyes that wept over Jerusalem have looked into your eyes, and they have said with all their ancient tenderness, My servant, go and snatch dying sinners like brands from the burning by proclaiming my gospel. Will you be disobedient to the heavenly vision? and despise him that speaks to you from his cross on earth and from his throne in heaven? Blood-washed as you are, blood-bought as you are, give yourself up more fully than ever to the delightful service which your Redeemer assigns to you. Be quick to say, I, even I, must work the work of him that sent me while it is day. You have no idea the amount of good you may do, my brethren, if you always feel the burden of the Lord as you should. I was led to think of that fact from a letter which I received, which did my heart good as I read it. The dear friend who wrote it is present, and I know he won't mind my reading an extract. He had fallen into very great sin, even though he often attended this tabernacle. Being frequently convicted in heart, his conversion was not brought about until one day he was riding by railway to a certain town. He says, I entered into a compartment in which were three of the students of the Tabernacle College. Although I didn't know them at first, I began speaking on the subject of temperance. 
I found two of them were total abstainers, and one was not. We had a nice, friendly chat, and one of the abstainers asked me if I enjoyed the pardon of my sins and peace with God. I told him I regularly attended the tabernacle, but I could not give up all my sins. He then told me how, in his own case, he had found it very desirable to be much in prayer and communion with God, and how in this way he was kept free from many sins which had previously held him prisoner. I concluded my business in the town and was returning home. I was rather foolish because I had no money with me to pay for my ride home, and consequently had to walk all the way. I heard some singing at a little chapel. I entered and was invited to a seat. It was H. Baptist Chapel. It turned out that the three students with whom I had travelled on the train a few hours before were there. It was an occasion of deep concern to many because one of the students who was their pastor was saying goodbye to his flock that evening, and many were in tears, including him. I asked one of the students to pray for me. He did so, and I tried to lift up my whole heart to God and, as it were, leave all my sins outside. I found them a heavy weight. At last I believed in Jesus and exercised a simple faith, the kind I never knew before. I became quite remorseful and humiliated. I found the Lord there. He is sweet to my soul. God has, for Christ's sake, forgiven me of all my sins. I am happy now. I will always pray for the students at the pastor's college and never, I hope, withhold my finances for the support of the same. God be praised for the students. Do you see that a casual word about Christ and the soul will have its reward? I heard once of a clergyman who used to go hunting. When he was reproved by his bishop, he replied that he never went hunting when he was on duty. But he was asked, When is a clergyman off duty? It is the same with the Christian. When is he off duty? He ought to be always about his father's business, ready for anything and everything that may glorify God. He feels that he is not sent on Sunday only, but sent always, not called now and then to do good, but sent throughout his whole life to work for Christ. The greatest obligations seem to me to lie upon each one of us to be serving Christ because of the desperate case of our ungodly neighbors. Many of them are dying without Christ, and we know what their end must be an end that has no end, a misery that has no bounds. Oh, the sorrow which sin causes on earth! But what is that to the never-ending misery of the world to come? Our time in which to serve the Lord on earth is very short. If we are going to glorify God as dwellers on earth, we must do it now. We will soon be committed to the grave, or they whom we are able to bless may go there before us. Let us then challenge ourselves. I felt much weight on my mind yesterday from the consideration that we, as a nation, are enjoying peace, an unspeakable blessing, the value of which none of us can rightly estimate. Now, if we don't make, as a Christian church, the most diligent attempt to spread the gospel in these times of peace, before long this nation may also be plunged into war. War is the most unquestionable of curses. Among its other mischiefs, it turns the minds of the people away from all religious thoughts. Now, while we have peace, and God spares this land from the horrors of war, shouldn't the church of God be intensely eager to use their opportunities? The night is coming, and I don't know how dark that night may be.
the political atmosphere seems heavily charged with evil elements. The result of the present conflict between France and Prussia may not be what some would hope, because it may again crush Europe beneath the despot's heel. Now, while we have liberty, a liberty which our fathers bought at the stake and sealed with their blood, let us use it. While it is day, let us work the works of Him that sent us, and let each man take for his motto the verse that comes right after my text, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 9, 5. Take care that your light is not darkness. Take care that you don't conceal it. If it is light, take care that you don't despise it, because even if it's a little light, it is what God has given you. Make sure that you will be able to give God a joyful account of even your little light. If you have any light, even if it's only a spark, it is for the world that you have it. It has been given to you for the benefit of the souls of men. Use it, use it now, and God help you. Oh, that our light as a church would shine upon this congregation! How I long to see all my congregation saved! Let believers be more in prayer, more in service, more in holiness, and God will send us His abundant blessing for Jesus' sake. Amen.